Good morning. Today's scripture readings are selections from John, Acts, and Philippians. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. This is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us, sent him atoning sacrifice. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We're starting a new series of sermons this week, five weeks, on the subject of obstacles to belief. And the idea here is to address the the five most common objections that people have to Christianity, the five reasons you don't believe. The assumption is, basically, if, if, if you don't believe, if you're not a Christian, there's there's two sets of reasons why you're not a Christian. In the first place, you are, are not persuaded by the arguments in favor of Christianity. But in, in the second place, you are persuaded, you are convinced by the arguments against Christianity. You, you question the, the reasons for, but you don't really question the, the arguments against. And so if you wanted to help a person come from... Uh, disbelief to belief, there's two ways you could go at it. You could either try to strengthen the arguments for, or you could try to weaken the arguments against. And we're essentially doing the latter over the these five weeks. We talk about the reasons for Christianity all the time, but for five weeks or so, we're going to play defense, essentially, and try to poke holes in the objections, the arguments against Christianity. And what I want to show you is these reasons you have for not believing that you think are so great really aren't that great after all. They're not nearly as solid as you think they are. So if, even if we succeed, if we do that, if we defeat those belief defeaters, if we make you doubt your doubts, that in itself isn't going to be enough to, to make you believe. It's really just enough to, to kind of disorient you, um, which, is, which is basically the point. I want everybody to emerge more confused after these five weeks than they were um, when we started. So hopefully you got the email with the, the list of the five topics, the, the subject we're going to look at each week. Uh, this morning, the first one is uh, we're calling exclusivity and arrogance. And basically, it, it goes like this. Doesn't, doesn't Christianity say, doesn't it claim that it's the one true religion? Doesn't it claim that it has the truth that everybody else should submit to? Because if it does, if that's true... Then we we can basically just stop right there. You know, I don't I don't really need to hear any more, because I, I I don't need that. Nobody needs that. The world doesn't need that. I'm an open-minded, tolerant person, and I don't have any place for a system that's that arrogant and that exclusive and tries to impose itself on everybody else. That's how the objection goes. 
So we want to address that this morning, and I want to do it in, in three parts. Um, first, I want to analyze the claim, analyze the charge, and see to what extent it does or doesn't actually apply to Christianity. Second, though, I want to then uh, take that same charge and apply it to other religious viewpoints, including irreligious viewpoints, which are religious viewpoints, which we'll, we'll talk about in a few minutes. And then third, after we do that, I want to try to reverse the charge. I want to um, revisit Christianity after we've looked at the other religions and say, well, w- wait a minute, aren't there some things within Christianity that actually, if you look closer, make it the most inclusive, the most humble System of thought, ideology of any type that humanity has ever seen. Um, so those are the. Uh, I I feel compassion for these people that are being blinded right here. Excuse me. As I was saying, uh, first, uh, what was I saying? Um, So three sections. Analyze the charge with respect to Christianity. uh, See whether it's true or not. Then apply the charge to other religious viewpoints. And then third, revisit Christianity and see, well, wait a minute. Aren't there things within Christianity that actually make it quite inclusive and quite humble? So first, analyzing the charge with respect to Christianity. And this is just kind of on facially, on a surface level, is there anything to this, this charge? Is it based on misconceptions or is it based in fact? And I think the, the short answer is, yeah, it, it is based in fact. It's not completely baseless. A person's not crazy for claiming that Christianity is, is exclusive and arrogant. So if you look at, if you've got your, your uh, program here, this is on the back of your program. If you look at verse number one, you just heard this read. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Very famous line. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father. That, that would be God. No one comes to God except through me. Sounds pretty exclusive. Sounds pretty arrogant. And it is. I'm not, I'm not claiming that it's not. I do want us to kind of understand what this statement doesn't mean and what it, what it does mean. Um, so first, a couple of things that it doesn't mean before we get to kind of what it actually means. Uh, the first thing it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have any type of relationship with anybody except Christians. It doesn't mean that. The Bible says many other places that that's not the case. So if you look again here on your insert at, at verse number 2, this is from the book of Acts. Paul's preaching a sermon here to a group of, of Greek pagan philosophers. So a lecture, rather. And he says, he himself, that's God, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, that's Adam, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring." So Paul's talking to this group of pagan Greek philosophers, and he's saying, look, you, you may not know it yet, but my God is your God. My God cares about you just as much as he cares about me. My God has been watching over your people just as much as he's been watching over my people. He's guiding the lives of nations. He's guiding the lives of individuals. He's calling everyone to himself. And whether you believe in him or not, whether you're religious or not, it's in him that you live and move 
and have your being. You are his offspring. In that sense, you're a child of God. So when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, it doesn't contradict that. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have some sort of relationship with everybody. The second thing it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that to say that Jesus is the truth doesn't mean that there's not truth in other religious systems and other philosophies as well. So you see this in that same passage, actually. At the end, you see those last two lines have quotes around them. Uh, Paul says, For in him we live and move and have our being. That's a quote. And then, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. That's a quote. He's quoting from these Greek pagan philosophers, essentially quoting this audience's sacred text back to them and saying, there's a lot here I can agree with. There's a lot of overlap here. And there is. There clearly is a lot of overlap. And not only is there a lot of truth in other religious systems besides Christianity, but you can take that one step further and even say that there are a lot of truths, there are a lot of Christian truths that other religions and other philosophies are going to understand better than Christians do themselves. So, for instance, uh, Christians, Christianity teaches that God is holy. The average Muslim understands the holiness of God a lot better than the average Christian does. Christianity teaches that the only way to self-fulfillment is through self-denial. The average Buddhist understands that a lot better than the average Christian does. So, not only is there going to be truth in other religions, but there's going to be some Christian truths that other religions understand better than than Christians do themselves. So that's what it doesn't mean. What it does mean, and now we're getting to, you know, why people have this objection in the first place. What What it does mean when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, it means that if, if you ignore or reject Jesus, this is the, the Christian claim, if you ignore or reject Jesus, you are profoundly missing out on a closeness with and an experience of God, not only in this life, but in the life to come. If you reject him, if you, if you don't follow him, more importantly, if you don't believe in him, if you don't attach yourself to him by faith, there's going to be this separation between you and God that wouldn't exist if you would unite yourself to Christ. Because Christ is God in the flesh. See, a Christian could never say, well, you could know God just as well without Jesus as you could with him. A Christian could never say that. A Christian could never say, a life without Jesus is just as good as that same life with Jesus. It's impossible. That's That, essentially, is what this exclusivity uh, objection is all about. Because in the end, it is all about Jesus, and Jesus is greater than all, and if you really want to kind of put a, a point on it, the Christianity does say every other religion, every other system of thought, thought, to the extent that they reject Christ and fail to acknowledge Christ for who he is, they are wrong in that sense. So you say, well, I knew it. You know, ha, the objection holds. You know, you started with disclaimers, but there you go. It is exclusive. It is just as exclusive and just as arrogant as I always assumed. You know, I win. Um, but you know, this is we're only this is section one, so it's not it's not over yet. Uh, what I want to do now is, having done that, try to apply the same charge of exclusivity and arrogance to other religious viewpoints as well. This is section two now, and what I want to show you here is that. Actually, this charge is just as true of other religious viewpoints, and even irreligious viewpoints, as it is of Christianity. So I know know that's a pretty big claim, um, and to to back that up, I want to start by just kind of carving the world up and saying, well, what are the religious viewpoints that are out there? If we're really going to cover all of them, we've got to categorize them. So, you know, there's obviously hundreds of religions. There's only a few dozen major ones, and even from there you can narrow it down to three. There's really just three 
big classes, three main religious camps, categories in the world. So the first is monotheism. That's 55% of the world. By the way, these, these uh, figures are from the Pew study last year, a very reputable organization. So 55% of the world are monotheists. That's um, Jews, Christians, and Muslims. 55% of the world worships this, this one God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, the God of, of Genesis, essentially, which is it's pretty remarkable in itself, 55% of the world. The second class is uh, Eastern religions, and that's about 25% of the world, and that's mostly Buddhism and Hinduism. And then the third category, the third religious camp, 15% of the world, is the unaffiliated, the religiously unaffiliated. And if you are good at math, you know that only adds up to 95. Um, so the other five is miscellaneous, essentially, mostly like folk religions, tribal religions, things that don't have a, a sacred text. So ignoring the, that last 5% for our purposes this morning, three camps, three main camps. Monotheists, 55%. Eastern religions, 25% and the unaffiliated 15%. I want to show you that all of them are just as exclusive and, and arrogant, so-called. Um, so first, monotheists, this one's the easiest, um, partly because, you know, this is my camp. But to this, the same way that you can say this about Christianity, that, you know, exclusive and arrogant, it applies exactly the same to Judaism and to Islam. And I, I, I can just flatly assert that. I, I don't even have to fear being contradicted. You know, no... Uh, Jew or Muslim would deny that Judaism and Islam, like Christianity, claim to be the one true religion. All three claim that. And yeah, they all worship the same God, this God of Genesis, but they all paint such radically different pictures of that God that they all look at the other's picture and say, wait a minute, no, no, that's, that's not my God. You know, that's not the, we're not talking about the same guy. And so that they each look at the other two and say, um, essentially, you know, your, your view of God is so deficient that you, you really fail to worship him as he really is. They all claim to be the true religion in that sense. They're all exclusive. They're all arrogant in that sense. You say, well, that's why I never liked monotheism, you know. So give me the, give me the Eastern religions. So the Eastern religions, um, while their demeanor is, I, I think, softer, you know, and there's an there's appearance of more being more inclusive, it's still a case that the Eastern religions make claims about reality as it is. So take, take Buddhism, for example. The first, first step of the, the Noble Eightfold Path is right perspective, right outlook, right view. What is that? It's, it's a set of beliefs about how the world actually is, about why we're here, about what happens to us when we die. It's not just spiritual practices. It's, it's truth. There's truth claims. And those truth claims flatly contradict the monotheistic religions. So um, the monotheistic religions say there is a God, and the point of your life is how you respond to that God. Buddhism says that's just not true. That's not the case. Um, or Christianity specifically says everybody needs a savior from outside themselves to help them get out of the human predicament. Buddhism says that's not the case. You have the resources within yourself to kind of lift yourself out of the, the human dilemma. So it's just as exclusive. It's just as arrogant in that sense. It claims to have the answer. Now, uh, forgive me for kind of rushing through those, for rushing through monotheism and the, the Eastern religions, because um, what I really want to get to is this third group, the unaffiliated. And that, because, you know, it's kind of obvious that, uh, hopefully it's obvious that every religion claims to be the religion, or else it would have died out a long time ago. Um, what's less obvious, what's more surprising, is that these unaffiliated folks, this unaffiliated viewpoint, 
is every bit as exclusive and everybody that is arrogant and everybody is religious as the the distinct religions themselves so to show that I, w- I want to break this this third camp the religiously unaffiliated into three different groups the first group are those that say well okay this is so ridiculous look at look at all this fighting look at all these people arguing look at all these people thinking they have the one correct view of god this is so silly why can't you guys just all see that that you all have part of the truth. You all have part of the truth. You can all make this compatible. And, you know, there's really no reason to to fight because all religions lead to God in some way or another. And and this person is is extremely annoying. This is a this is an extremely annoying line of, of reasoning because they think they're so humble. They think they're being so humble, but really they're insulting everybody. And to, to show you that, let me let's look at their, one of their favorite illustrations, analogies, which is the story of the blind men and the elephant. So uh, there's these these three blind men that come upon an elephant. I'm not sure exactly how that happens, but just go with it. So they come upon an elephant, and uh, one blind guy grabs onto the trunk and he says, "Oh, elephants are, you know, long and flexible." And then one of the guys grabs onto the the leg, and he says, oh, elephants are, are short and round and, and sturdy. And then one guy puts his hand on the side, and he says, oh, elephants are, are broad and flat. And the, the, the point of the story is, you know, God is like the elephant, and the world religions are like the blind men. Everybody's got part of the truth. Everybody's just grabbing onto a different part of the elephant, a different part of God. Everybody's got part of the truth. Nobody's got the whole truth, but why can't we all just get along? And the, the, what's so absurd about this story is the, who, wh- the narrator, the narrator, the objective narrator is the only one that doesn't have you know, a blindfold on, is the only one that can see. And the person telling this is essentially saying, I, unlike everybody else, unlike everybody within the world religions, I'm the objective narrator. I'm the objective third party. Unlike everybody else within all the religions who is blind, I alone can see extremely, extremely arrogant and extremely exclusive because they're, they're saying, they're claiming to say everybody's right, everybody's right. But what are they really saying? The majority of the world doesn't believe that it's possible for everybody to be right. The majority of the world believes these are real debates, real issues that have real answers. And so when you say everybody's right, what you're really saying is everybody's wrong. What you're really saying is everybody's been duped, everybody's a fool. Why don't you all come to my more enlightened perspective and see the big picture, see the whole elephant, see that it's all compatible. Just as arrogant, just as exclusive. Again, that doesn't mean it's wrong. That doesn't mean that person's not wrong. It could be the case. It could be the case that all religions in the end lead to the same God. I don't think it is. Most of the world doesn't think that's true. It could be the case. I'm not arguing that. I'm just trying to show you that it's just as exclusive. It's just as narrow. It's just as arrogant as the religious viewpoints themselves. So that's the first type of unaffiliated person. The second type of unaffiliated person is the person who's much more honest. I like this kind of person a lot better and just says, look, not, it's not that all the religions lead to the, the, the same God. It's that all the religions are a dead end. You know, it's all kind of um, a bunch of garbage. Just a kind of hardcore secularist, maybe an, an atheist. Um, and, you know, this is great because this person is, at least says, I think you're all wrong. And so very clearly they're being arrogant. Very clearly they're being exclusive and saying, I've got the one truth and all the religions are, are in the dark. Uh, and you say, well, at least this, this kind of person, this secularist kind of person, doesn't try to push their, their views on everybody else. But that is, is just 
patently false. Secularists are often the, the most fervent uh, evangelists of all. So Mark Lilla is this uh, professor of humanities uptown at Columbia, and he did a, a piece for the New York Times magazine back in 2005 uh, covering the, the last Billy Graham crusade, you remember, at Flushing Meadow? Um, and he, he talks about riding home on the 7 train after the crusade and striking up a, a conversation with this uh, guy that's standing next to him who t- turns out to be a, a student from Wharton Business School. And this is, uh, he, he's talking to him, and he, he finds out, you know, he's asking him what he thought, and he finds out that when Billy Graham gave the invitation to come forward, the guy came forward to receive Christ. And he's just shocked by this. You know, this is a, a Wharton student, obviously a very bright guy. Why would he do this? And this is what Mark Lilla writes. I wanted to cast doubt on the step he was about to take. To help him see there are other ways to live, other ways to seek knowledge, love, perhaps even self-transformation. I wanted to convince him that his dignity depended on maintaining a free, skeptical attitude toward doctrine. I wanted to save him. The curious thing about skepticism is that its adherents, ancient and modern, have so often been proselytizers. In reading them, I've often wanted to ask, why do you care? Their skepticism offers no good answer to that question, and I don't have one for myself. Skeptics and and secularists and atheists are often the most fervent evangelists. And again, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with advocating your position. I'm all for it. But just realize that it's just as exclusive, it's just as narrow in claiming to have the one truth that nobody else has as any religion is. The, the third type of unaffiliated person, maybe you've been kind of holding on for this one, is the person who just says, I don't know. You know, they claim that I don't know one or the other. I don't think they're all right. I don't think they're all wrong. Maybe one's right. Maybe, they're, maybe the rest are wrong. Maybe a couple are right and the rest are wrong. I, I don't know. I have no idea. Um, a so-called agnostic and you're thinking, well, this person obviously can't be arrogant and exclusive, you know, because they're, they're, they're totally sitting on the fence. They have no position at all. So how could you claim that this person is, is arrogant and exclusive? But they are. They still are because they, they still take a position. They still make definite assertion even while claiming to be on the fence. And that, the assertion is, they may not say it, but they're, they're making this assertion with their lives. The, the, the claim is... If there is a God, he's not the God of the monotheistic religions. If there is a God, he's not the type of God that's going to hold me accountable for how I respond to him. Because that's what all the monotheistic religions say. All the monotheistic faiths say, uh, your outcome in the life to come depends upon how you respond to God in this life. And it's the most important thing about your life. It's the only thing that gives life meaning. And the, the agnostic, the person who claims to not be taking a position, is taking a position. In fact, they're betting their life on it. They're betting their life. They're putting all their chips on this position of, it's not like that. I don't know what it's like, but I know for sure it's not like that. Or maybe not for sure. I mean, maybe it's only 51%. It doesn't really matter whether it's 51% or 99%. They are still putting their chips somewhere. They're still making a claim. And in doing that... In saying, if there is a God, I know he's not like that, then they're still being exclusive. They're still being arrogant. They're still saying to half the world, you're wrong. The God you believe in doesn't exist. It's still just as exclusive. It's still just as arrogant. The point of this this whole second section is just to say that everybody 
whether they realize it or not, whether they admit it or not, has a religious viewpoint. Everybody does. And everybody believes their religious viewpoint is the best or else they wouldn't hold it. And everybody thinks the world would be a better place if everybody else adopted their view. Everybody. That's true of everybody. So if it's true that, that Christianity is exclusive and arrogant, then, then so is everybody else. Say, so is that, is that the point, that Christianity is no better or no worse? No, there's a third section of the message, and it's this, this third section is where I want to try to reverse, or at least make some headway in reversing the charge. Actually turn the charge on its head and say, well, wait a minute. Um, isn't it actually then the case, if everybody's kind of exclusive and arrogant in this technical sense, if we get more substantive about it, isn't it actually the case that Christianity is the most inclusive, the most humble? And to, to show you why that's true, we have to go back and look at this first verse that we looked at, the, the statement of Jesus, where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there's, there's something odd about that statement that should kind of jump out at you and seem strange. It maybe doesn't anymore because, you know, it's such a familiar line now. You've probably heard it in all sorts of different contexts. But if you were hearing it for the first time, there's something that, that should strike you, which is that he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, not I will, I will show you the way, I will teach you the way, not I will, I will teach you the truth, not I will uh, give you the life. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And what that points to is, is the, the center of the heart, the basic foundation of Christianity, which is that Christ is not primarily great, because of what he taught. He's not primarily great because of um, anything he showed us how to do. He's primarily great. He's primarily worthy of worship because he's God himself. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life who comes and lives the life that we should have lived and dies the death that we deserve to die in our place. If you look at the third verse there from 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent him, Christ, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Sorry, I got cut off there. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent him as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so, you know, whether you believe that or not, and whether you even understand it or not, and nobody does, nobody fully understands that. Whether you believe it or not, or understand it or not, you can at least recognize that this differentiates Christianity from other, every other religious system or every other philosophy. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us. Because the point of every traditional religion is how to love God. How do we love God? How do we be good? How do we perform? How do we do what God wants us to do so he'll accept us? And Christianity says this is love, not that we love God, not that we learned how to love God, but that God loved us, that Christ came, that God came in the flesh. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's different. It's totally different. It's not like Buddha. It's not like Muhammad. It's not like Moses, who are great because of their teachings, because of the way they show us how to live. Christ does show us how to live, but that's not primarily what it's about. And, and so then, when, when you go back to this original question of, you know, does, does Christianity claim to have the truth, the one truth? Well, yeah, it does, but what is that truth? What is that truth with a capital T? When the great truth of the universe is, is unveiled, what is it? It's a man on a cross dying for people that hated him, forgiving people who had put him there, 
serving people who wanted nothing to do with them. That's the truth. That's the big, imposing truth. And so, so then, if, if that's what it is, then all of a sudden it, it starts to feel like, well, okay, so the objection of exclusivity and arrogance, yeah, I guess it's true formally, just as it's true for every other religious system. But substantively, I mean, does it really hold? Does it really have any teeth? If this is the truth, if this is the big, mean truth, this person, not an abstract idea, but this person. Um, this week I, I watched, um, very very late, uh, The it's almost 20 years old now, the movie Dead Man Walking, you might remember this, um, with Sean Penn and, and Susan Sarandon. And uh, just to refresh your memory, so Sean Penn's, uh, he's participated in this double uh, murder of these two high school students, boyfriend and girlfriend, and he's on death row, and he writes to Susan Sarandon, who's a nun, um, to try to help him with his appeal. Basically, he's, he's trying to use her, um, but he doesn't know what he's in for because she's got her own agenda, and she starts spiritually counseling him over a period of months. And, you know, he's this guy that's absolutely impossible to like, impossible to love. He not only was was there for these murders, but he's a racist, he's a pervert, you know, you name it. Just not not a, a fun guy. Um, and so by associating yourself with, with him, she then becomes an outcast herself. You know, she, respectable society doesn't want anything to do with her. The, she tries to talk to the families of the victims. They, they don't want her, you know, anywhere around. Um, and she just keeps going back to talk to this guy on death row about Jesus, telling him about who Jesus was, telling him about what Jesus did, telling him about how Jesus faced his own death, telling him about the kind of people Jesus hung out with, telling him about Jesus' teachings. And, and the one teaching that she keeps coming back to is, Jesus said, the truth will set you free. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And she's emphasizing this because he is denying that he committed the, the murders, or either of the murders. He's saying, I was there, I was stoned, I was, I was drunk, you know. I, I witnessed it, but I just went along. I didn't do it myself. And she doesn't buy it. So at the same time that she's working on his legal appeal, she's pressing him personally to confess. And, you know, he's, he's hardened and, and surly all the way up until the, the final scene. He, it's like 30 minutes before his execution. He gets off the phone for the last time with his, his mom and his brothers, and she comes in to sit with him for the last 30 minutes of his life, and he just, you know, starts talking. I mean, he's hardly talked at all the whole rest of the movie, and he just starts, except he's, you know, saying terrible things. And now he just starts rambling and saying, you know, I, you know I've been thinking about what you said and about how I could have walked away, and I know that's right. And he keeps going and fi- finally says, you know, I, I did it. I killed the, I killed the guy. I raped the girl. Uh, I did it. And he breaks down and is, you know, crying at this point. And, and she's crying too. And then he says, um, last night I prayed for forgiveness. Last night I prayed for the families. I prayed for the, the guy and the girl. It's the first time I prayed in my whole life. And she says, um, you know, what you did is a, is a terrible thing, um, but you're forgiven. Christ is here with you. The truth has set you free. You are a son of God. He says, you know, people, I've been called a son of a you know what plenty of times, but I've never been called a son of God before. I've never felt love like this before. Thank you for being the first person to ever love me. And and the question is, who else, who else, where else besides Christianity is there a place for this guy? Where else can he be accepted? Where else can this guy be included? Because traditional religion doesn't have 
a place for them. And, you know, if, you, if, if you're in traditional religion, it's impossible not to look down your nose at the people who aren't as good as you are. Secular society doesn't have a place for them. Where else besides Christianity is he going to be able to be accepted like this and loved like this? Because why is she able to love him? She's able to love him because she knows, look, we're the same. We're the same. Christ had to die for my sins just the same as he had to die for yours. And all my, my prayers and all my church going and all my, my good deeds don't change that. Nothing changes that. We're the same. We both put Jesus on the cross. We both have to confess. We both have to ask for forgiveness. That's why she's able to love him as an equal. It's not exactly exclusive and arrogant when you get right down to it. It's, it actually starts to look radically, almost scandalously inclusive. Almost too inclusive, if anything. And that's why it, it, the only people it really excludes are those who are too proud to accept it. Because, I mean, you can understand that. You can certainly, I certainly respect that position. You know, this is, this is beneath me. I get that. But, but exclusive and arrogant, I, I'm not so sure. Let's pray. God, as we look at these objections we have to belief, uh, I know that we're not going to be able to hit all the arguments, and I know that we'll go down some rabbit trails, and um, not everything we, we talk about will be necessarily to the point. Um, but I, I pray that you'd take the parts that are true, and take the parts that do point us in the way you want us to go, and you'd you bring those back to our minds this week as we think about these things, that you impress them upon us. I ask that over the next five weeks that you'd guide us. And God, I pray especially for those who are here this morning who are interested in knowing you better but have things that are bothering them, reasons that they feel like um, this isn't for them. God, I pray that... I, I know that talking about the the objections to belief isn't going to be enough in itself to, to, for them to connect with you. So I pray that you'd speak to their hearts. I pray that you'd draw them. I pray that you'd come to them as they make this small step of, of opening themselves up and, and kind of listening and engaging. It's in your name we pray. Amen.